Chapter 19 of The Millionaire Baby by Anna K. Green. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Millionaire Baby by Anna K. Green. Chapter 19. Frenzy. Five minutes. Ten minutes elapsed, and I became greatly impatient. I walked the floor. I stared from the window. I did everything I could think of to pass away these unendurable moments of suspense with credible self-possession, but I failed utterly. As the clock ticked off the quarter hour and then the half, I grew not only impatient but seriously alarmed, and flinging down the book I had taken up as a last resort, stepping from the room in the hope of coming across someone in the hall whom I could interrogate. But the house seemed strangely quiet and, when I had walked the full length of the hall without encountering either maid or mistress, I summoned up the courage to return to the room I had left and rang the bell. No answer, though I waited long for it. Thinking that I had not pressed the button hard enough, I made a second attempt, but again there was no answer. Was anything amiss? Had she? My thought did not complete itself. In sudden apprehension of I knew not what, I dashed from the room and made my way downstairs without further ceremony. The unnatural stillness which had attracted my attention above was repeated on the floor below. No one in the rooms, no one in the passages. Disturbed as I had not been yet by anything which had occurred in connection with this harrowing affair, I leaped to the nearest door and stepped out on the lawn. My first glance was toward the river. All was as usual there, with my worst fears dispelled, but still a prey to doubts for which as yet I had no name. I moved toward the kitchen windows, expecting, of course, to find someone there who would explain the situation to me. But not a head appeared to my call. The kitchen, too, was deserted. "'This is not chance,' I involuntarily exclaimed, and was turning toward the stables, when I perceived a child, the son of one of the gardeners, crossing the lawn at a run, and, hailing him, asked where everybody had gone, that the house seemed deserted. He looked back, but kept on running, shouting as he did so, "'I guess they're all down at the bungalow. I'm going there. Men are digging up the cellar. Mrs. Ocumpaugh says she's afraid Miss Gwendolen's body is buried there.' Aghast, and perhaps a trifle conscience-stricken, I stood stock-still in the sunshine. So this was what I had done, driven her to frenzy, roused her imagination to such a point that she saw her darling, always her darling, even if another woman's child, lying under the clay across which I had attempted simply to prove that she had been carried. Or, no, I would not think that. A detective of my experience, outwitted by this stricken, half-dead woman, who I had trembled to see try to stand upon her feet? Impossible. Yet the thought brought the blood to my cheek. Digging up the bungalow cellar, that meant destroying those footprints before I had secured a single impression of the same. I should have roused her curiosity only, not her terror. Now all might be lost unless I could arrive in time to... To do what? Order the work stopped? With what face could I do that with her standing by in all the authority of motherhood, frenzied motherhood, seeking the possible body of her child? 
My affair certainly looked dubious. Yet I started for the bungalow like the rest, and on a run, too. Perhaps Providence would favor me, and some expedient suggest itself, by which I might still save the clue upon which so many hopes had hung. The excitement which had now drawn every person on the place in the one direction was at its height as I burst through the thicket into the path running immediately about the bungalow. Those who could get in at the door had done so, filling the room whence Gwendolen had disappeared, with awe-struck men and chattering women. Some had been allowed to descend through the yawning trap-door, down which all were endeavoring to peer, and, fortified by this fact, I armed myself with an appearance of authority despite my sense of presumption, and pushed and worked my own way to these steps, saying that I had come to aid Mrs. Ocumpaugh, whose attention I declared I had been the first to direct to this place. Struck with my manner, if not with my argument, they yielded to my importunity and allowed me to pass down. The stroke of the spade and the harsh voice of the men directing the work greeted my disquieted ears. With a bound I cleared the last half-dozen steps, and, alighting on the cellar bottom, was soon able, in spite of the semi-darkness, to look about me and get some notion of the scene. A dozen men were working, the full corps of gardeners without doubt, and a single glance sufficed to show me that such of the surface as had not been upturned by their spades, had been harried by their footsteps. Useless now to promulgate my carefully formed theory with any hope of proof to substantiate it. The crushed bonbon, the piled-up boxes, and the freshly sawed hole were enough without doubt to establish the fact that the child had been carried into the walled-up room above, but the link which would have fixed the identity of the person so carrying her, was gone from my chain of evidence forever. She, who should have had the greatest interest in establishing this evidence, was leaning on the arm of Miss Porter and directing, with wavering finger and a wild air, the movements of the men, who, in a frenzy caught up from her own, dug here and dug there, as that inexorable finger pointed. Sobs choked Miss Porter, but Mrs. Ocumpaugh was beyond all such signs of grief. Her eyes moved, her breast heaved. Now and then a confused command left her lips, but that was all. Yet to me she was absolutely terrifying, and it took all the courage left from my disappointment for me to move so as to attract her attention. When I saw that I had succeeded in doing this, I regretted the impulse which had led me to break into her mood. The change which my sudden appearance caused in her was too abrupt, too startling. I feared the effects and put up my hand in silent deprecation as her lips essayed to move in what might be a very disturbing command. If she heeded it, I cannot say. What she said was this. It's the child. I'm looking for the child. She was brought here. You proved that she was brought here. "'Then why don't we find her, or, or her little innocent body?' "'I did not attempt an answer. I dared not. "'I merely turned away into the corner, "'where I should be out of the way of the men. 
A thought was rising in my mind, a thought which might have led to some definite action, if her voice had not risen shrilly and with a despairing utterance in these words. Useless! It is not here she will be found. I was mad to think it. Pull up your spades, and go. A murmur of relief from one end of the cellar to the other, and every spade was drawn out of the ground. I could have told you, ventured one more hardy than the rest, that there was no use disturbing this old clay for any such purpose. Anyone could see that no spade has been at work here before in years. I said that I was mad, she repeated and waved the men away. Slowly they retreated with clattering spades and a heavy tread. The murmur which greeted them above slowly died out, and the bungalow was deserted by all but our three selves. When quite sure of this, I turned, and Miss Porter's eyes met mine with a reproachful glance, easy enough for me to understand. "'I will go, too,' whispered Mrs. Ocumpa. "'Oh, this has been like losing my darling for the second time.' Real grief is unmistakable. Recognizing the heartfelt tone in which those words were uttered, I recurred to the idea of frenzy with all the sympathy her situation called for. Yet I felt that I could not let her leave before we had come to some understanding. But how express myself? How say here and now in the presence of a sympathetic but unenlightened third party what it would certainly be difficult enough for me to utter to herself in the privacy of that secluded apartment? in which we had met and talked before our confidence was broken into by this impetuous act of hers. Not seeing at the moment any natural way out of my difficulties, I stood in painful confusion, conscious of Miss Porter's eyes, and also conscious that unless some miracle came to my assistance, I must henceforth play but a sorry figure in this affair. When my eyes, which had fallen to the ground, chanced upon a morsel of paper, so insignificant in size, and of such doubtful appearance, that the two ladies must have wondered to see me stoop with ill-concealed avidity, pick it up, and place it in my pocket. Mrs. Ocumpa, whose false strength was fast leaving her, now muttered some words which were quite unintelligible to me, though they caused Miss Porter to make me a motion very expressive of a dismissal. I did not accept it as such, however, without making one effort to regain my advantage. At the foot of the steps I paused and glanced back at Mrs. Ocumpa. She was still looking my way, but her chin had fallen on her breast, and she seemed to sustain herself erect only by a powerful effort. Again her pitiable and humiliating position appealed to me and it was with some indication of feeling that I finally said, Am I not to have an opportunity of finishing the conversation so unhappily interrupted, Mrs. Ocumpa? I am not satisfied, and I do not believe you can be, with the partial disclosures I had then made. Afford me, I pray, a continuation of that interview, if only to make plain to me your wishes." Otherwise I may fall into some mistake, say or do something which I might regret, for matters cannot stand where they are. You know that, do you not, madam? 
Adelaide, go, go, this, she said to Miss Porter. I must have a few words with Mr. Trevitt. I have forgotten what I owe him in the frenzy which possessed me. Do you wish to talk to him here? asked the lady, with very marked anxiety. No, no, it is too cold, too dark. I think I can walk to Mrs. Carew's. Will you join me there, Mr. Trevitt? I bowed, but as she passed near me in going out, I whispered in her ear, I should suggest that we hold our talk anywhere but at Mrs. Carew's house, since she is liable to be the chief suspect in our conversation. Now? Now, more than ever. Her share in the child's disappearance was not eliminated or affected in any way by the destruction of her footprints. I will go back to the house. I will see him in my own room, Mrs. Ocumpaugh suddenly announced to her greatly disturbed companion. Mr. Trevitt will follow in a few minutes. I, I must have time to think, to compose myself, to decide. She was evidently thinking aloud, anxious to save her from any self-betrayal. I hastily interrupted her, saying quietly, I will be at your boudoir door in a half hour from now. I myself have something to think of in the interim. Be careful. It was Miss Porter who stopped to utter this word in my ear. Be very careful, I entreat. Her heartstrings are strained almost to breaking. I answered with a look. She could not be more conscious of this than I was. End of chapter 19